This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about salmon and how to keep them from going extinct. If you live in the Pacific Northwest, you know that salmon are woven into the culture here, and they have been for a very, very long time. Many generations before the image of salmon-filled Seattle gift shops, native tribes relied on the fish for sustenance, and they still do today. But the populations that return to the rivers here during their spawning runs are a fraction of what they used to be, and they appear to be sliding toward extinction. But in the last few decades, a movement to reverse that depopulation has gained steam. It's been focused on the dams along the Snake River, which stand as a major obstruction to the salmon. But the dams have also served as sources of hydroelectric power, which is something else that has more recently become woven into the culture of the Pacific Northwest. So removing those dams is no easy task. The effort has been getting very real attention from elected leaders, including President Joe Biden, who mentioned efforts to restore salmon populations during an Earth Day speech earlier this year. To better understand what's at stake, we invited two proponents of dam removal to the Crosscut Festival to discuss where the movement stands now. Dr. Helen Neville is the senior scientist for Trout Unlimited, where she provides guidance for the organization's policy work. She's also a researcher who has studied genetic characteristics and homing behavior of salmon. Alyssa Macy is the CEO of the Washington Environmental Council, and she's a citizen of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, Oregon, and was raised on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation. Asking the questions here is Rocky Barker, a retired journalist who was previously the environmental reporter at the Idaho Statesman, where he was instrumental in the development of a series of editorials in the late 90s calling for the breaching of the Snake River dams. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting UBS.com team slash the Arbor Group. I hope you find this conversation helpful. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Helen, Alyssa, welcome. Thanks, Rocky. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Well, this is, uh, you know, this is really an exciting time to be talking about this. You know, we're at a critical moment. First, you know, Snake River salmon and sealhead are really heading towards extinction, despite everything that we've done. Second, the nation is finally recognizing our obligation to address environmental justice and treaty rights. And finally, we have a unique political opportunity, actually a bipartisan movement in the region and administration 
that wants to save salmon and orcas. So I let's let me start with uh, Helen with you. So we're talking about extinction. What is the threat of extinction for Snake River salmon? Well, unfortunately, as you just said, Rocky, the threat is real. Um, we have four stocks of salmon and steelhead in the Snake River Basin um, that prompted your earlier work in the 1990s because they were listed beginning in 1992. Um, and since that time, you know, we've spent over $17 billion in efforts to try and improve the situation. But I think it's arguable that, or not arguable, I think in many cases, um, for many of these stocks, the situation is actually worse today. If we look at spring, summer Chinook salmon in the basin, for instance, the returns that we're seeing today are about 70% of what they were when these fish were listed in the early 90s because of their critical situation at that time. Um, and some of the other metrics that biologists use to, to look not only at abundances, which is one important factor, but also at the um, characteristics of these populations in terms of whether or not they're sustaining themselves, so how, how able they are to reproduce and replicate the population over time. Those metrics have been below sustainability for several decades now. Um, and I think, you know, another important thing that has recently been put out that has put a real point on this was a report by the Nez Perce tribe last, last fall. Um, where they looked at each of the individual populations here and found that 42% of our populations in the Snake River Basin have actually reached what they call a quasi-extinction threshold, which is less than 50 returning adults and is an indicator that is used to show that we are really in a very critical stress period where um, the actual extinction of these fish is, is likely um, and we are at real risk of that. And, and this report predicts that about 77% of our populations will reach that threshold just by 2025. So, you know, I think it's important to emphasize that the, the, the biology is laid out, the status is laid out, this issue is real, and we are at a real crossroads where um, without meaningful, dramatic change, you know, that is not just business as usual or incremental change, we risk losing these fish and that we have a choice to make today where you know non-action is actually a choice mm -hmm. to accept the fact that these fish are declining and if we don't do anything dramatic and meaningful to to make the situation change they they will go extinct with the current trajectories wow so you know this has been an issue of salmon and dams you know for 25 30 years but Maybe Alyssa, you could tell us how environmental justice and treaty rights have kind of changed the equation lately. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation to be here and to speak on such an important issue. I think uh, to start out, I just wanted to define what environmental justice is. And um, in 2021, the legislature passed the Healthy Environment for All Act, the HEAL Act, and defines environmental justice in, in that piece of legislation. The fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, rules, and policies. When I think about that definition and I think about the time when these dams were built, there was no consideration of how these dams would impact tribal people from fishing and sustaining ways of life that have been practiced since our beginnings. In fact, some of these dams that were built uh, early on were built without fish passage. 
So with more than 400 dams spanning the Columbia River Basin, um, consequently, wild stocks fell into a steep decline. And as you just heard, we're talking about extinction, quasi-extinction. This has such a tremendous impact um, as they've declined and the possibility of extinction on tribal nations. We have uh, been required in this process to bear the heaviest impacts of what's occurring the loss to our ability to fish in our usual, usual and accustomed places, a disruption of a way of life that has been practiced since time immemorial, our spirituality, our very being is tied to our relative Waikanish, the salmon. So when I think about environmental justice in this day and age, there's a reckoning of not only the impacts of tribal nations, individuals, myself as a, as a Wasco woman from the Columbia River Basin, or my relatives, the Ninapu, the Nez Perce, there's also a recognition about treaty rights. And, and I cannot, you know, cannot forget um, at any point when we talk about treaties that they are the supreme law of the land. And that's cited in the U.S. Constitution, Article 6, Clause 2. And, and in that clause, it also elevates treaties above any state law or constitution. So when we're thinking about all of these things together, there's a recognition that we need to address the treaties, our treaties. It's not just the tribal treaty, right? You also are part of that treaty um, and the impact that it has had to Native peoples. When I think about the possibility of there not being salmon, I have to ask the question, who would we be as Wasco people, as Warm Springs, as Yakimas, as Umatillas, as Nez Perce, who would we be without salmon? I have to ask that question. I don't wanna answer it, but it's something that I think about in this work every day. Um, it, is, it is the reason um, that I came here to, to work with Washington Environmental Council, Washington Conservation Voters was because I care about salmon. Everything in our environment, in my opinion, and I think science also demonstrates, is tied back to our relative. And so environmental justice, I'm thankful that we're having the conversation. It's been a long time coming and I feel optimistic about the work that's underway. Boy, I hate to think of myself as a Northwest citizen without salmon period. Um, so, you know, we're talking all about the Snake River. Why is the Snake River so important to this whole basin? Uh, uh, talk about that, Helen, could you? Well, I, I mean, simply put, it's, it's really the best of the best for these fish, not just in the Columbia, but across the entire west coast of the lower 48. Um, the Snake River currently represents about 20% of the accessible habitat for these fish, um, salmon and steelhead in the lower 48, but it represents about 50% of the cold water habitat. And that proportion is expected to increase to around 65% in the future under climate change. You know, this is because we have that, you know, well-known well high elevation habitat, the longest migration for these fish in the lower 48, coming up to the Sawtooth Mountains with all of the snowpack we have up here. So there's, there's the high quality elevation aspect, but also the fact that it represents 40% of the wilderness quality public protected lands across the entire West. So, you know, this really is the, the sort of anchor for high integrity, resilient habitat for these fish across the West under climate change. And, you know, our best, best bet, if we're gonna put our, our money and our hope and our resources somewhere, 
this is the most meaningful place to put it for a future for these fish in general. Wow, it's it's really like it's Noah's Ark, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, so, you know, I would say I would say you know other one other aspect of that is it's not only important in terms of the habitat that's here, but it's an it's important in being able to provide these fish with the buffering and sort of the resilience that they need to grow and become abundant and be in good condition um, and, and reach the ocean in good condition so they can deal with some of the impacts there as well. So it's you know important not to separate the importance of this habitat here for their entire life cycle and how keeping this intact and keeping the migratory corridor intact and reducing the impact on these fish throughout that part of their passage has real implications for how they do in the ocean and then on their return back up. So Alyssa, why is it that we actually, I mean, I've been following this a long time. What, what is the political opportunity in front of us right now? Yeah, thank you, Rocky, for that question. I first want to recognize the many, many voices, including yourself, that have been a part of this campaign from the beginning. This is not something that is just happening in 2021, 2022. This is work that's been carried on for decades by the Nez Perce, by folks like yourself, elevating the issue to the public about the need to breach the Snake River dams to save um, endangered salmon and steelhood. So thank you uh, for, for doing that. I think right now we've had um, some leadership that's been demonstrated in our region, most notably um, Representative Simpson from Idaho, who stepped forward, who bravely stepped forward and elevated this issue in a way that hasn't been done before. He did this um, with a lot of consultation with tribal nations, with uh, stakeholders in, the, in, in his state, asking the question uh, about breaching these dams. And so I was really thankful to see that happen. And because of his initial work and, and the work that's been carried forward by many, many voices, we are where we are today and an opportunity for us to make a difference in this particular issue. So I feel like the political climate um, is, is ripe for this discussion, in addition to addressing the issues of treaty rights, um, in particular for the Nez Perce, but also for other tribes within the Columbia River Basin. Um, we are also talking about um, sort of globally uh, about this wanting to move to a carbon-free clean energy systems. So we have this opportunity to look at dams, in particular dams that have uh, gotten to a point where it's costing more to take care of them and to keep them upgraded, to continue to produce energy. And it's giving us this opportunity to really think about what we could do as an alternative um, for having hydropower. And it's a really exciting piece, uh, like a piece to think about, I think for the region, the opportunities there to explore um, different types of energy. It's an opportunity to address longstanding treaty rights issues. And we're seeing our elected officials step up. I think we'll talk about the Murray Inslee Initiative, can also talk about um, our representatives here in the region that are stepping forward with courage to ensure that on our watch in this time that we will take the necessary steps to address the issue of salmon, that they will not die in the time that we, all of us, are in these positions to make a difference. So I feel like the timing is now. Um, and when you think about the issue of salmon, as you mentioned previously, it connects to you 
Um, it connects to Helen. It connects to all of us as people of the Pacific Northwest. It's not just about tribes. Um, it is about an economy. It is about all the businesses that serve the fishing industry, all of the consumers, um, lots of sports fishermen, many type of people are connected to Waikanish. And so I'm excited that we are in this moment. This is the time to engage and be active in this issue because we are moving the needle. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, this summer with a upcoming report that's gonna be coming out. I'm sure you're gonna ask about that. Well, I am. So tell me, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the, the biggest, most interesting thing about this, particularly for me, who is a, I always tell people I'm an upstreamer, is that uh, <laughs> Governor Inslee and uh, Senator Murray began working on this. Uh, and there hasn't, that hasn't happened very much uh, over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. What are they doing? Yeah, so last fall, Senator Murray and Governor Inslee committed to developing and delivering a comprehensive solution to protect and recover Snake River salmon and to invest in the region's communities by July 31st, 2022. So this year, July. Um, recently in February, they also posted an online survey and they invited people to share their thoughts about the Snake River Dam and salmon recovery. And this is one part of the Murray Inslee Snake River Initiative. This initiative is intended to determine how to restore endangered salmon as they consider removing the four Snake River dams and replacing their services with alternatives. Um, it is important now that we, all of us Pacific Northwest folks, um, show strong public support uh, for the leadership of Senator Murray and for Governor Inslee and their commitment, the commitment that they bravely made to step forward to develop a comprehensive plan that will protect and restore salmon and steelhead and includes removing those dams. So I would encourage you to, to engage in this process and um, encourage your friends and family and your colleagues to gave, engage in this process. And it's not just, I think, the folks that may think the same way that I do. Um, it's important for everybody to engage because this is a complicated issue. It has many facets to think about. So we need everybody's thoughts um, to, to really get to a point where we have the best plan possible. Um, after, uh, so Senator Governor, uh, Senator Governor, Senator Murray and Governor Inslee um, will announce their findings with an actionable plan um, by July 31st, as I mentioned. And uh, we're anticipating a draft report about the services um, provided by the dams and how they can be replaced. And there will be a public input process for that sometime uh, mid to late May. And it is important to engage um, in this initiative at every opportunity that you can. Well, that's that's a good way to lead into this. You know, the challenge is this has been a very hard political issue. The folks who, you know, are the defenders of the dam have, you know, they've basically been telling us for 30 years, no, not what do we need to do to make this work? It's just simply been no. Mm -hmm. uh, what do we need to do to change that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Alyssa, I'll ask you, but Helen, the other part of this that people are saying for those folks is, so we do all of this and, we'll, you know, how do we know that the salmon are going to come back? Should I jump in on that real quick? Please do, Helen. Or, yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing that I, I hope people come away with um, 
from this today is an inspiration around these fish. We cannot forget how amazing and remarkably adaptive these fish are. And it's basically their resilience is how we know they'll come back. I mean, as, as Alyssa and her people know, these fish have, have been on this landscape, which is one of the most dynamic landscapes um, in, our, in our continent. Um, you know, they have, they have evolved through millions of years with multiple glacial cycles. At one point, the ocean was 115 meters below what it is now. I mean, imagine what a change that was. Back and forth and back and forth on that front. In the inland areas, they've, they've suffered massive wildfires, debris flows, floods, you know, volcanic eruptions. And yet they've persisted on this landscape and they've done this because they're remarkably able to come up with different strategies for how to survive given all of that dynamic but dyna, dyna, dynamism of the landscape. They have, you know, not to get too wonky on the biology, but, but salmon, what we love about them is their amazing life histories. So they have fish at different parts of the system at different times, right? They're not all going out at the same time and all coming back at the same time. They have different life stages and ages and reproductive strategies so that some fish go out at age one, some go out at age two, three, you know, they return at different ages and they do different things in different places. So that means that if there's an impact in one part of the system, um, you know, even for a couple years, there are multiple fish around the entirety of the system who can continue to keep that cycle going. So, you know, we're seeing their remarkable ability to recover and adapt to change at, through, through other dam removals that have been incredibly successful. We're, we're watching in real time the, the remarkable response to the Elwha dam removal in Washington, where yes. these fish are coming back in, you know, impressive abundance. They're recolonizing areas themselves. They're reestablishing life histories that haven't been expressed in, the, in these systems for almost 100 years. For instance, the summer steelhead life history in the Elwha hasn't been observed there in any real numbers since those dams were put in, and they are reemerging that strategy. Again, so that's you know, different from the other steelhead strategies in that basin, and it's part of this overall biological ability to buffer what what comes at them but the issue is that they're you know they're really hitting up against the limits of that resilience with these dams mm -hmm. um, but no doubt given that history and their remarkable abilities they will respond if we give them a chance I want to pick up on the statement of limits of resiliency when I think about the folks that are in the no side of this campaign, um, I ask myself sort of the, the bigger qu question, do we recognize that the climate is changing? Are we as humanity hitting our limit of resiliency? There is so much happening at the global level around climate change, the impacts of climate mm -hmm. change. And when you look here in the region, uh, and read the news, you also are reading these stories, um, for example, in California about their water and access to water. Things are changing. And I think part of the no, the no folks are, they don't want to change. And, and I get that change is hard and this is a big issue. It requires a lot of things to happen um, it concurrently and to be sequenced in to make this a reality. And so some folks have just uh, not, not a good at being in a change cycle, but the reality is, is we are in a change cycle. There is only one planet right now that we can habitat. This is it. This is where we live. And we all need to get into the canoe and row in the same direction. We, we have this opportunity in front of us to address 
the issue of hydro and its impacts on tribal nations. We can have a discussion about hydro going forward for more decades as we have. If salmon go extinct, we can't keep talking about it. There's an end point, then that be, that's done. And then we would see the consequences of that throughout our ecosystem and throughout um, this region. It's direct impact on people and it's direct impact on tribal nations. Um, I, I do think that, that the, the folks that are in the no campaign are maybe adverse to change. Um, and I encourage folks to share their thoughts. I think it's important to hear about your concerns. I care about what you think. I want this to be a part of a process where we all come together with good hearts and good minds and contribute to the solutions. So the folks that are hesitant, you should engage. You should be a part of this process, provide input through um, this, the, the Murray Inslee Initiative and share what your thoughts are so that when we come out of this process, we have the best possible path forward. That's what I'm hoping for. We don't want to keep talking about these dams in 10 to 20 years. It's going to take a long time to remove them. And in that time, salmon will continue to be impacted and decline. And what I don't want to answer is the question, who would we be without salmon? And I think this, again, is the time to push this issue in a way that it's never been done before. And it's, and it's happening. It's happening in a, in a way that has never been done before. And that is exciting. Well said. Yeah, so, I, I think again, just to, to emphasize, to pick up on the last thing you said, not engaging is a choice, right? Mm -hmm. Not engaging is a choice to let the, the current trajectory continue to the loss of these fish and to let these decisions otherwise be made for you. So I think that's a really, really well said, Alyssa, that, that now is the time for people to get involved and give their voices. You know, one of the things I've, when I watch this, this debate, the thing that uh, has fascinated me about it is when we get a lot of fish coming back, oh, every, you know, suddenly everybody forgets uh, again. And, and then when we, when, when there's you know a lot of conditions, obviously a lot of uh, conditions out in the ocean that have, that kind of cyclically uh, hurt hurt our fish. They go up and down. It's just the natural cycles. Uh, where are we in that cycle right now? Uh, are we uh, in a are we in an up or a down cycle? I mean, are these fish going to wink out soon? Well, I think I mean it's it's hard to put a time time frame on that. Rocky, um, but I will say that in the 90s, when you were writing your good reports, you know, people were predicting by the end of this past decade, we would be at this extinction point and, and we are there. So I think, you know, the, those predictions have come to fruition with, with everything people have predicted. Um, you know, we are in, currently uh, in a La Nina, so the conditions in the ocean are, are good for fish. And so we're seeing a little bit of a bump in their returns this year um, compared to previous years, but that's not a that's not an indication of a trend or a real trajectory. That is bouncing around, you know, these extinction thresholds. If we look at the true numbers of where we have been in the past and where we want to go in the future, I think the other important um, aspect of this conversation is the Columbia Basin Partnership, which was a several-year process that involved numerous numerous stakeholders. Um, tribes, agencies, land, you know, all, everybody at the table, all of the states agreeing on these recovery goals for these fish that are not just the recovery goals to get them off the endangered species list, 
but what, what people of this region want, which are robust, healthy, and harvestable returns, and what we have obligations to the tribes to reach. And so when we talk about upticks this year, you know, we're nowhere close to the goals that, that all of these groups have re, re agreed on in this long and thoughtful process. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that's a really important thing to talk about is this sort of shifting baseline of people look at, you know, when we look at the last 10 years, there might be an uptick this year compared to the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. But again, the last 10 years is on the floor compared to where we need to be. And and I'll add, I I live with the fishermen uh, from Lummi Nation, and Dana fishes and talks a lot about their ability to fish and what they were fishing now and what they were fishing in the past. And there is a notable change when you talk to the people that are out there um, exercising their treaty rights or fishermen that are out there um, fishing as part of their own businesses they will tell you that things have changed. So while the science may do this, the impact on the people closest mm -hmm. to this is, is very real. It impacts the ability to bring food home, to put on the table, literally, um, and it impacts people's abilities to have businesses um, in the fishing industry. And then everybody who serves those fishing industries, and you go to the marinas and you see all of that, and you know that there's an industry around it. So I think that the science and, and, and how the nature works is cyclical, um, but the impact on the day-to-day -day frontline folks is, is felt in a very, very real, tangible way. Well, we're now, you talked a little bit about uh, climate change. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, uh, in the uh, other argument, the, the folks who like are in the grain business and the shipping business there, they're all worried that we're going to add to climate change if we, you know, take out these uh, hydro systems. Uh, uh, what do you say to you know? Are, is that is that a? I mean, is that a serious issue, or what? What could we do? Well, it's a it's a um, effective thing to argue, I think. But the the true science shows that dams and the reservoirs behind them pose significant significant sources of greenhouse gases carbon dioxide and methane more importantly which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas and so I, if you review the science from the last several years in particular because this issue hasn't really been evaluated as much um, looking at the the greenhouse gas production of dams and reservoirs it, that's a huge part of the matrix that just hasn't been incorporated into these arguments so by removing these dams and the reservoirs behind them, we actually have an opportunity to make significant gains there. Well, you know, one of the things I've heard too, that's, you know, they talk about, you know, how many more trucks will be on the road and stuff like that. I noticed that uh, we're starting to see uh, some of the uh, big rail companies uh, moving towards electric trains. Yep, yep. I think electric, electric uh, trucking, big electric 18 yeah. wheel trucks, you know. I mean, there's a whole lot of new technology that's coming out. It seems to me, uh, like you were saying, Alyssa, I mean, it's going to take a while for the, us to get these dams out. Uh, you know, it, we're, we're going to have a whole lot of new technology come along here in the next mm -hmm. uh, six years or more, huh? Yeah, it's an exciting time. And I would hope that people recognize and understand that the climate is changing. I know there's some people still in the no camp. Um, I would say go visit California and talk to folks there about how it has changed um, in terms of their access to water because it's so 
real in this moment or look at a community in Alaska, Nutak, um, which is literally falling, falling into the ocean, literally falling into the ocean. They're losing land from their community. Um, this is a very real thing. And we have this opportunity right now um, to address this particular issue. But when I take a step back and I think about the larger picture, there are so many things that we could be doing to uh, reduce our carbon footprint. We need to reduce our carbon footprint. And we have this opportunity to really think about that in the way in the Pacific Northwest that's gonna best suit our needs. So yes, um, moving to electric vehicles is really important. What can I do as an individual as well um, in terms of how I choose to transport myself around the region is a question that I can um, answer and, and implement. But again, if we do nothing, which is a choice, as Helen uh, stated, it is a choice to do nothing. What would be left in the future? What would your children or your grandchildren inherit? What kind of planet are they gonna have in 30 years? That's a question I think about a lot. Um, I have um, my godson that I think about, all my nieces and nephews that I think about, and I, I ask myself, what can I do today to ensure that they have a future? Because they will still be here. I may not, but they will have to live with the consequences of our decisions today. And if and if you love the people in your life, you're going to do the things that are going to be hard and maybe uncomfortable in the interim to ensure that we have one planet, just one. And, and right now we need to, to, to move mountains, be courageous, be brave in this space, to make the hard decisions, to do the advocacy work, to step forward and use your voice. This is the time. And we may be running out of time. And, and I just want to, I want to know in the future, in 10 years that I've done everything I can for my godson and my relatives and for you for all of you, I want to make sure that I've, I've done everything I can. So I invite you to get into the canoe, grab paddle, because we got places to go. We got a lot of work to do. But the time is now not just for salmon. It's not just about salmon. It's literally about our very existence. Um, and, and, and I think about that all the time. I'm, I probably read way too much news and consume way too much, but it is, the, it is what drives me um, to do this work. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Uh, Alyssa, uh, so well, how are the tribes communicating with the uh, Biden administration? This is one of the questions I'm getting from uh, the audience. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the tribes are definitely um, making their own way to Washington, D.C., having direct engagement with the Biden administration. Um, that includes uh, Deb Holland, De 
Department of Interior, um, the Secretary of Energy, the Council on Environmental Quality, and many, many staff throughout the administration. So tribes are going there and having this conversation directly as part of that government to government relationship. Um, here in the region, tribes are working together, having conversations about the issue. Um, this is an issue where tribal nations are leading the effort. And so as a person who works for an NGO, wanting to be very respectful about that, also supporting the tribes in their needs for additional information, um, to help them gather, to help put positions forth. So it is a intra-tribal conversation that's occurring between leadership. And it's also a conversation with tribes going to DC. Here in the state of Washington, in addition to the Columbia River Treaty tribes having this conversation and engaging on it, there's conversations with other tribes here in the state of Washington. Um, the one thing we know is that orcas eat salmon and in particular, Columbia River salmon. So when we're talking about the possible extinction of salmon, we are also talking about the possible extinction of orcas. Um, as, and so the, there's a connection between tribes throughout the state on this issue. So you'll see things like the Orca Salmon Summit, which is uh, which gathered last fall. There's a lot of tribal gatherings that are happening now around this particular issue to discuss and to elevate. And, and I don't want to forget um, the grassroots folks. There's a lot of people that are out there, tribal folks included, that are pushing this issue at a grassroots level amongst their networks connecting with people that care about the environment, care about fish, care about communities that are also part of this. So it's happening um, within, I guess, the tribal world at multi-levels of people just talking about this. Um, at the end of the day, I think all of us understand tribal folks that without, without salmon, who would we be? This is, this is something that we need to be talking about. So Helen, one of the questions I uh, got from the audience is, so, uh, how do we know that the Snake River isn't going to become too warm for salmon uh, uh, because of climate change? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, and, and there's no doubt that the Snake River is already being impacted by climate change, um, you know, and, and parts of it may become too warm. But I think when we look at the lower elevation habitats outside of the Snake Basin, there's definitely um, indications that some of those areas will be too too warm. And so as these fish contract in the future, you know, they will be contracting to this bullseye here in this in the Snake River Basin, which still does is predicted to have resilient habitat. Um, so I think the key is that we need to be doing everything we can to make the changes that Alyssa is talking about to take advantage of this remarkable opportunity we have before us to improve the situation for these communities for the salmon. Um, and to increase their ability to be resilient in this habitat that will that will be here. Well, it's going to be interesting. Of course, we have uh, we have some tools to help keep the uh, Snake River cool. One of them is Dwarjak Reservoir way up on the uh, North Fork of the Clearwater. Uh, we could uh, use that water uh, uh, solely for cooling the river, couldn't we? Uh, if we needed to. As, and it will go, it'll extend on. down farther once once the upper dams are, are removed. You know, another another point I would like to make is that I think we tend to see the way fish respond to the current environment as the fish are today, but it's important to, to recognize that we have really reduced their resilience in so many different ways. 
their abundance is lower, which means you know they don't have that ability to to respond and expand into the environment, which they will when they're given access. But when their abundance is lower, their life history diversity is restricted. We've um, we've impacted their genetic integrity with hatchery fish. We've you know harvested them. There's there's multiple points at which we have really narrowed the ability of this fish to respond to its environment. And there's some really interesting recent science that shows that where the fish used to respond to climate in various different ways in you know responding to flow, responding to temperature, responding to different parts of the climate variability, now they are really constrained to responding more to temperature. And that is a, a, an artifact in a way, but a, a, a consequence of the restricted biological diversity that you know they, they don't express as much as they used to. So again, that's where I'm saying, if we can continue to think about meaningful, real ways to increase their numbers, increase that diversity, they will respond to the climate um, in, in ways that we're not seeing today. So what you're saying is we essentially, if we can just uh, give them the tools they're going to find their way through some of the challenges they face uh, over the next 50 years. Yeah, I mean, if we can just reduce the impact of the hydro system, um, you know, and, and reduce the mortality that is expressed through their experience in the hydro system, uh, that will give them, you know, let them express the tools they already have to so respond. One of the questions, uh, uh, one of our, uh, 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 viewers uh, just gave me was so is this these four dams are uh, managed by the uh, US Army Corps of Engineers do they have the final say in whether we take these out or breach them so to speak and it, you just do it will it. Take an act of Congress right mm -hmm. to, to remove these dams which is a long long and an important and complex process which is why you know Lisa has framed it so well why it's so important for us all to be engaged with our representatives on this and let them know our our desire for making a change here mm -hmm. Alyssa might so, have have more to add on that front than I but yeah, just just to uplift what you said, we need to engage and and we need to engage not only at with the Biden administration, we also need to engage at the regional level. Um, the Washington delegation, including Senators Cantwell and Murray, are really important in elevating this issue. And they need to hear from their constituents that you care about this issue. Um, share your thoughts, your ideas, all of that. Um, the Biden team is key to salmon restoration and has been a fully engaged partner. And most recently, um, when Biden was in Seattle for Earth Day, he called out the need to restore salmon. So people are paying attention. But the reality is, is in order for this to happen, our elected leadership needs to hear from us. And I shared with you previously um, some of the processes that are underway for people to engage. And I would just encourage people to step into that process and, and be an active partner. You know, our democracy is only gonna work as good as we make it. And so part of us making it the strongest democracy possible is to be active in it. So encourage folks to, to engage. One, one other aspect of that, I think, is, as you said earlier, Alyssa, this is a really difficult decision, right, or a difficult issue for politicians and policymakers to step out on. And it yeah. takes incredible courage um, and vision to do that, especially when you're kind of ahead, in some cases, thinking ahead to the needed change. 
Um, and so it's really an instance where speaking out to them and giving your, them your voice is so helpful because it gives them the wind and the sails they need to have that courage to step out, right? And it just continues to enforce and reinforce what the public wants behind the issue. Well, unfortunately, I think we're gonna have to stop it here. Thank both of you for taking the time to join us at this Crosscut Festival uh, this year. And you know, this has really been a fascinating conversation. We're clearly at this very important moment and I hope uh, we've given the audience some inspiration to get involved in this important work. Thank you, Rocky. It's been a pleasure and I very much appreciate the Crosscut Festival for giving us this opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. It, it is uh, such an honor to be here, um, to bring a voice forward uh, from tribal nations um, on this issue. Most importantly, to bring a voice uh, forward for our relative Waikanish, the salmon. Just really appreciate it and encourage again for folks to get engaged, be part of the solution get in the canoe, grab a, grab, <laughs> grab an oar. We've got places to go and we need all the people that we can get to make this happen. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Alyssa, Helen, and Rocky for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. The event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara, and Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.